1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. I'm sorry, 2 Peter. Why did I say 1 Peter? I, I printed a, my notes off on a printer. It's got one little streak right down the middle of the page, and it took out the second Roman numeral there. I looked up and saw 1 Peter. We're in 2 Peter. I thought, boy, that's odd. We were in 1 Peter last week. All right, 2 Peter chapter uh, 1, excuse me. And um, again, this book is written uh, by Peter. There's a lot of people out there that if you read any kind of external sources about the authorship of 2 Peter, you're going to find a lot of people who say there's not a good certainty that Peter wrote it. If we believe the Bible to be inspired, all we need is verse number 1. And if you look at it, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them who obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's all the reason we need to know that Peter wrote this book. There are some differences in the styles of writing between First uh, Peter and Second Peter. Um, and again, that's certainly by the Holy Spirit's design. And uh, he, can, he can choose whatever style he wants to use uh, to do these things. And so we certainly... Uh, believe that Peter is the author of it simply because verse 1 tells us that it is. And that's the only reason that we need. First Peter was written uh, for the purpose of encouraging those, if you remember, the, the, the folks that were scattered, the Hebrew Christians and the Gentile Christians that were scattered abroad. And they were scattered abroad because of the out, outside and the external persecutions that were going on. Um, a lot of criticism in that day, a lot of pressure to depart from the faith or to go back to their old lifestyle. If you remember specifically in 1 Peter, uh, Peter speaks of the fact that the reason they were going through such persecution was because they were not living the way that their old friends that they used to hang around with were still living. They wanted them to return to their their carnal lifestyle. And uh, so Peter wrote that letter encouraging Christians to be steadfast in their faith. And he, he emphasized the fact that they had been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that He had redeemed them from their sins and that uh, that was the anchor, that was the foundation that they could hold to, uh, all that Christ had done for them, uh, they could hang on to that truth and stay unwavering and steadfast. When we get to Second Peter, he writes this towards the end of his life. In fact, more than likely, was written sometime between 64 and 66 A.D., um, and just towards the end of his life, we're not certain the exact date of Peter's martyrdom, but it would have had to have been uh, more than likely between those two years, uh, somewhere in that time frame. And he writes this letter shortly before he dies. There's some indication in the book about it uh, that in uh, some other books that reference this around that time frame um, in Scripture, and so we believe it to be written right around that time. He knows it's towards the end of his life. He makes reference to that in this letter, uh, that his time was drawing near and, uh, we certainly know that. This is kind of his final um, encouragement, if you will, his, his exhortation. And he writes this to the same people that he wrote the first letter to. If you look with me, the Bible says in verse number 1, uh, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, and grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, and so, uh, again, he writes this to the same group of people. And um, he writes this letter, not because of the external opposition that was going on, but now because of false teachers that were rising up inside the church. 
and he expresses the danger of this. In fact, probably out of all the books in the New Testament that deals with the issue of false teachers, this one is probably the most exhaustive book on the subject that you'll find. Uh, he deals with a large majority of the issues regarding the dangers of false teachers and the fact that, that what makes them so dangerous and possibly even more dangerous than opposition from without is because false teachers were rising up from within the church and they were enticing through their teaching and they were drawing the hearts of the people and the people were not as much on guard for their false teaching because they were part of their church. They were, they were part of the people that sat in the pews of the churches or in the chairs of the churches uh, there. And so um, they, they were much more susceptible to follow along and to accept this erroneous teaching. And so Peter writes this book exclusively, really. Uh, in fact, if you'll take a minute, let's look at the very end of the book because I think the last two verses of the book basically sum the entirety of the subject matter up. But if you look in uh, chapter 3, verse 17, notice his final words, uh, just the very end of things here. He says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. I believe personally, and when we get done with this book, I think maybe you'll see this as well, that those two verses basically uh, express in one big statement, or maybe two sentences there, uh, the entirety of the subject of what this letter is dealing with. So, he's talking about these, these false teachers and the dangers that they, they uh, have. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse number 1, um, I want you to notice what he says about them. Chapter 2 and verse number 1. He says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring, and I want you to notice this, damnable heresies. Now, it's one thing for somebody to be wrong uh, on maybe dress code, or maybe uh, you know the, the issue of tithing or giving probably not going to make a big difference in somebody's life as far as their eternal destiny. These are not those kinds of heresies that he's speaking of here. He's speaking of heresies that are damnable. In other words, they are heresies that, if followed after, will lead someone to a life in hell rather than a life in heaven. So these are issues, and the false teachings that he's, he's talking about here specifically are those that are creeping up in the church and being accepted by these people that are issues of salvation. Uh, in fact, you'll find that they uh, begin to promote uh, the questioning of God's Word, Scriptures, and they also encourage and they actually are bringing about immorality into the church. And this is one of the big issues that they deal with here. Uh, these, these false teachers who, vindictively so, I believe, and with full knowledge, are trying to lead astray those that are in the church. And so these are the types of false prophets that he's dealing with here. Uh, so he stresses um, the ongoing need in this book. In, in his, If you remember back in First Peter, the basis of his encouragement to be steadfast to them with external uh, opposition 
was the fact that Christ had saved them. They were saved once for all. Don't depart from the faith. They've been redeemed. Uh, and God had done this great work in their lives. And that was the foundation stone. In Second Peter, he, he moves from that to not only have they been saved, but now in Second Peter, he deals with the fact that here's the way you combat the internal attacks, the false teachers. And that is by doing this. By growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The best antidote for, for doctrinal error is a mature understanding of truth. So a lot of people who say, well, I'm going to get saved and I'm going to get my, if for lack of a better expression, I'm going to get my, my ticket for heaven stamped so I know I'm going there. I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now I can sit back and take my ease the rest of my life and never have to worry about anything with regards to my eternal security. That's true. You won't. But are you going to follow after doctrinal error? And the big issue here is the way to combat the doctrinal error is by growing and maturing in the Christian life. Uh, that you don't, you don't just get saved and just sit in a pew and breathe in the good air and blow out the bad air. You, you are growing in the knowledge of the Word of God. And this will help us to combat. In fact, we teach it here. That everything that's taught, either from this pulpit or anything else that you hear out there, that somebody teaches about the Word of God... You don't take my word for it. You don't take their word for it. You compare it to Scripture. And it is the most important thing a Christian can ever get a hold of. You don't just believe a doctrine because it's what everybody's teaching. You believe a doctrine because it's what the Bible says. And Peter's expressing this very, very strongly. In fact, he's going to, we're going to look at that here in chapter 2 in just a minute, uh, how strong he believes in this idea. And... Uh, so the best antidote uh, for this doctrinal error that he's going to encourage them in is not just the fact that they've been saved, but their need to grow and to mature spiritually, day by day, uh, to be deepening their roots in the Word of God, uh, to be studying, to be learning these things. And I will tell you this, the more you understand Scripture, the more you will see at a glance false teachers and doctrinal error. Uh, it will come to it will come to your mind very easily. You won't have to have pastor get up and say, "Well, this guy's a heretic or he's a false teacher." You'll be able to understand it and have that discernment for yourself. And so, very important. And so he he charges these Christians who have obtained precious like faith um, to grow in this grace um, and in the knowledge of God. And that's what he says here in verse number two. He also ends the book with it. Uh, he says, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is how this is going to be combated, through the knowledge of God and of, of Jesus our Lord. And he wants this grace to be multiplied. So it's a growth, it's a continuous thing. There's three divisions of the book, very easily divided. There's three chapters. Each chapter is its own division. Uh, very, very easily outlined book. Uh, the first one is... Uh, the cultivation of Christian character. Boy, if there is a, a need in Christianity today, I would say it's the fact that we need to cultivate Christian character in our lives. We live in a day where we put very little emphasis on the importance of this, first of all, and the pursuit of it, second of all. Because we lack the importance of it, I think we fail in the pursuit of it as much as we should be. We don't pursue Christian character the way that we should. So he introduces this theme, and he starts in verses 1 and 2 by kind of expressing the fact of the theme of this letter, that 
the knowledge of Jesus Christ, this true knowledge, the, uh, the multiplying of it in our hearts and our lives, is crucial. It's key to developing and cultivating this Christian character, this, this level of integrity, uh, spiritually speaking, in our lives. And so he kind of introduces that in verses 1 and 2. And then he reminds them of the great and precious promises in verses 3 and 4. Look what he says. He says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through, here it is again, the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. How do we achieve that? Through the knowledge of Him. We're to be growing in our knowledge of Him day in and day out. Look verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partaker of the divine nature. In other words, you'll be becoming more and more like Christ. Uh, you'll be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. And so you can put it on a scale here, and you can say, as our knowledge grows, our corruption and the lust of the flesh decreases. And as our knowledge does not grow, the corruption and the lust of the flesh increases. It's very simple, and it seems to be the balance in Scripture that God always gives. Uh, Psalm 119, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin against God. The more we hide God's word in our heart, the less we are prone to sin. Alright? So there's a balance there that God speaks of throughout Scripture, that as we grow in our knowledge, as we grow in our Christian character, if you will, that this propensity towards the lust of the flesh will begin to decrease. Now, we never get victory ultimately over it. Paul said that. He said, not as though I had already attained or were already perfect. But he said, I, I do press toward the mark. I, I do try to go to that, that, that place of, of pursuing after holiness and godliness. And it ought to be the heartbeat of every Christian. This cultivating of Christian character. So he reminds them of these precious promises. There's two things in these promises that are spoken of. First of all, that we are called away from the world's corruption. When we get saved, God's given us the ability to uh, have uh, uh, the way to escape these things. He says in verse number 4, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lusts. These promises help us to escape these things. And so we're called away from worldly corruption, and we are called to the conformity of Christ. In verse number 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature. So we're to, be, we're to be retreating from the lust of the flesh. We're to be pursuing after the conformity to Christ. And Peter teaches this. And of course, this is no new teaching. I know that we don't have to sit here this morning and belabor that point because we all know these things. But one of the other things that Peter does in this particular letter is he stresses the importance from becoming a profession and coming, becoming more into the line of practice when it comes to the truth of God's Word. Instead of professing our knowledge of the truth, to put it into practice, to make it applicable in our lives. And he, he actually extensively deals with that as we get into verse number 5 of verse number 1. So again, de dealing with this idea of cultivating our Christian character, uh, he urges them to mature and to grow in the Christian life by forging, I, I wrote down here, forging a chain, if you will, of eight different uh, virtues of the Christian life. And uh, as we get to verse number 5 through 7, we see what those are. 
He says, and besides this, giving all diligence. Boy, that sounds to me like it's not just giving it the old college try. But this is putting our, our attention, our focus on it, straining at, the, at the, uh, any resistance that comes against us, putting that effort into it, giving all diligence. Add to your faith. So the first one is faith. Uh, this virtue of the Christian life called faith. We have enough faith to believe the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, to put our trust in Him. But we are also to live our life by faith. <coughs> so he says, adding to your faith virtue. And to virtue, which again, this idea of virtue, um, Lord willing, next hour we're going to be preaching on Job. I love the book of Job. What an amazing character this is. Portions of it a little difficult sometimes in the reading of it. But boy, what a, what a man Job was. And uh, this idea of morally mature, that there's a, there's a virtue about him. That he was, uh, the Bible says in chapter 1 of Job that he was, when God was talking to, to Satan about him, he says he's perfect. And it wasn't again saying that he was sinless. It was just saying that in every area of godliness and spirituality, he is fully mature. He is, there's nothing lacking. He has everything, every area, every aspect of his life revolves and centers around his godliness, his righteousness. And this is what virtue is about. We live in a day where uh, we think that virtue is doing the right thing occasionally. But no, no, virtue is something that enshrines the life and causes us to, in every point of our life, be not, but not to be lacking in godliness. Not to be lacking in every aspect of our life, in our conversation, in our work, in our relationships, in our entertainment, in our, our dress, in the way that we speak, in our thoughts. Every aspect of our life is to be in full pursuit of becoming more like Christ. This is virtue. We're to add that to our faith. This is what, this is what Peter is, is telling these folks. Listen, if you're going to combat these false teachers that are rising up and enticing people, and they were, they were drawing people away, if you're going to combat this, here's some things you need to do. You need to grow in this Christian character. He says, add to your faith virtue, or add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. There it is again. I cannot express enough the fact that as God's people, we ought to we ought to specialize in God's word. It ought to be the thing that we hunger and thirst for. I remember years ago. I love I love flying airplanes. I do. I love it with all of my heart. It's one of the things that I wanted to do for so many years, and God finally allowed me to do it. And, and boy, what a joy it was to my heart to be able to do that. And I, I know that's a fleshly thing, and just a, it's not anything doing with spiritual things. But I remember I, I wanted to fly, and when I got the opportunity, when the Lord opened the door and was allowing me to go through the process of getting my license, and uh, Dave's been through it before, he knows what this is like. Uh, that, that ground school, that, that training is a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. And, but, you know, I endured it. And, in fact, as much as I didn't really like all much, so much all the book study and all the, the training there, I poured myself into it. Uh, my kids were probably too young, but my oldest daughter would probably tell you, there were nights that I would stay up till sometimes 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning studying for my, my tests and studying for my next lesson uh, because I was, I was pouring myself into something that I loved to do. Isn't it amazing that we find the time to specialize and to learn about and to, and to increase our skills in the things that we love the most? What about our 
what about our salvation? What about our spiritual life, that which God has given to us, which ought to be the most precious thing we have? Why is it that we spend so little time specializing in this? If we get a new job and we're not yet qualified for it, and they hire us with the understanding that we're going to seek certification in, a, in an area of skill, we dedicate ourselves, we buy the books, we, we go to school, we sit in the classes, we watch the lectures, we study and try to memorize things and learn things and have an understanding of things, and we pour ourselves into it because it's of interest to us. Why is it that when it comes to the Christian life, we do so little in that area? When it ought to be the most important thing in our life. For you see, flying an airplane is only going to last me my lifetime. In fact, probably not even that. As my age and my health gets worse, I probably won't get to fly my whole life, unless Dave takes me up. Probably not going to get to. But that which I learned from Scripture is going to last forever. in the knowledge. Love this book. It ought to become precious. We ought to to, to absorb it. We ought to feast upon it. We ought to devour it. It ought to be the love of our hearts, the love of our lives. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge. Notice he goes on to say, to knowledge, temperance. Boy, there'd be a lot of us to do that well, wouldn't it? To have temperance in our life. To be even-keeled. Not to be extreme, high or low. To be steadfast, to be steady. What gives us the steadiness? The anchor, the foundation that we, that we base all of our life upon. When we build upon things that are not solid, then we are destined to have ups and downs. We're destined to have successes and failures. But when we base it on the solid rock of God's Word, it gives us stability to life, doesn't it? I don't mean to embarrass my oldest daughter, But a few months ago, she was talking to me, and she teared up. She said, Dad, I've loved the way that you have been in life. I've not always been the daughter I was supposed to be. But she said, Dad, you have always been steady. You know, that meant more to me than anything she could have said. And I told her, I said, listen, it wasn't because I was steady, because I was an emotional wreck through most of my life all the things that came into it. But whatever steadiness there was was because I was clinging to a foundation that held me there, that kept me from moving one direction or the other. And I'm not saying we don't have ups and downs in life, but there ought to be a, there ought to be a temperance to the Christian life. There ought to be a steadiness. There ought to be a peace in the midst of the storm because we're holding to the truth of God's Word and we're not getting our eyes on the circumstances. There ought to be times where where God blesses our lives that that we don't get too overconfident by it. That we don't get too lax in our Christian lives and say, boy, everything's going well. I'm on the mountaintop now, Pastor. You don't have to ever worry about me again. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, let's just be stable. And say, boy, I'm thankful God's blessing in my life, but I'm still just a sinner saved by grace. And I've still got to depend upon Him every single day to have victory in my Christian life. That we would have a temperance there, a stability, anchoring ourselves on God's Word. Patience goes without saying. You want to know what the next one is? I'm seeing how patient y'all are. (laughs) But have patience, all right? The Bible tells us what the next one is. Godliness. Godliness. Add to patience godliness. Become more and more like Him. 
every day. Brotherly kindness. Well, we could use a healthy dose of that in our world today, couldn't we? And charity. There's a warning that he gives. Notice what he says in verse number 8. He tells them what the blessings of this are, the benefits of this are. He says, for if these things be in you and abound. Now, I always look at the word abound, and I've looked it up before. And abounding is not just getting by. It's not just doing the bare minimum. It's not just meeting the requirement. Abounding means more than is necessary. To get to the place where they're not only in us, but they exceed that. They bubble over. Uh, how many of you remember the old Alka-Seltzer commercials years ago? You put them in, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, and the fizz comes up. They call that effervescence. It bubbles up. It bubbles over. There are people I've seen in years past that would pull pranks on folks, and they'd put those tablets in their mouth. They'd begin to froth at the mouth. You know what I'm talking about? Just kind of poured out of them. We ought to be so full of the Spirit of God that if somebody ever jostles us, it just spills out all over them. There ought to be a filling there. He says, If these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful. Notice here's that phrase again. In the what? Knowledge. How are we going to combat these false teachers? It will make you that you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, how do, I, how do I deal with these false teachers? Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You won't have any problems seeing them. You won't have any problems dealing with them. If these things be in you and abound, they shall make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. I wrote down this. If the believer does not progress from profession to practice, he becomes spiritually useless and he begins to pervert and corrupt the purpose for which he was called. It's not enough to just profess Christ. Oh, it'll get you to heaven if you put your faith and trust in Him. But to gain victory in the Christian life, to to be victorious in the Christian life, to be of spiritual usefulness in the work of God, we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter knew he was getting to the end of his life, and as he finishes up chapter number 1, he wants to express to them, because he's so emphasized this thing of uh, gaining the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, in verse number 15. Understanding that his time is short. In fact, he says in verse number 14, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. And he's going to bring up remembrance again in chapter 3. These are not new truths. And this is something that I want to kind of spend a second on here. There are times that I've heard people say, Pastor, you've preached on that before. I know, but we need to be reminded. We so quickly let these things slip sometimes from our minds and from our hearts. I heard of an evangelist one time that came for a several-week revival. And he preached every night on John 3.16. And after several nights of doing this, somebody came and asked him, said, aren't you going to preach on anything else? And he made this statement. He said, if we can finally get the truth of this passage, 
Then I'll move on to something else. But we haven't fully gotten the truth of this passage yet. Because we keep forgetting things. We're not quite there. He knows his time is short. In verse number 16, he says this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. In other words, he's saying these truths, these are not just things that we've come up with. These are not our own fables. These are things that we've seen with our own eyes. I am personally an eyewitness, is what Peter was saying, to these things. Notice it says, uh, to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father... Honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, he's referring here not to the baptism, but to the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter was an eyewitness to that account. In fact, he was the one who said, let's build here three tabernacles. And, uh, and immediately, God took the other two away and left just Jesus there. Uh, Peter was an eyewitness to this. He saw this. Could you imagine that? Wow, could you, could you imagine being Peter and seeing that? What an amazing thing. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. He said, I saw it with my eyes. I I heard it with my ears. The things I'm teaching you folks, these are not just my opinions. This is what Peter's saying. He's saying, I've seen it. I've heard the Christ. I know that these things are true. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 19 because he knows he's going to be leaving soon. And that these people needed to be reminded constantly of these things. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Wait a minute, Peter. You just said you saw it with your own eyes. You heard it with your own ears. Peter said, there's something even more sure than my eyewitness account and my hearing. And that is the word of prophecy that God has given to you. We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture, this is why we know that this more sure word is referring to Scripture. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, we didn't say it of our own thoughts, our own opinions. These are inspired words of God. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These things I'm reminding you of, Peter said, they're not from me. Oh, sure, I saw with my own eyes and I heard with my own ears, but there's something even more sure than that. Why did he do that? Because Peter was soon going to be gone. And there were going to be false prophets that were going to stand up and teach false prophecy and people are going to say, well, Peter said that you're wrong. And they're going to say, where's Peter, to, where's Peter to rebuke me? Where's his eyewitness account? We can't hear from him now. He's dead. So what are we going to hold to now to, false, to, to combat false prophets? Peter left it with them, didn't he? He said, there's something even more sure than my own eyewitness account, my own hearing. And that is the prophecy that came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This book is more sure than if Peter himself stood in this building this morning and said, I'm Peter. I walked with Christ for three and a half years. I saw it all. I heard it all. Let me tell you what he said. Can I tell you, he would tell you at the very end of it, 
But don't take my word for it. This book right here is even more sure than that. And that's what he was telling these folks. Why? Because he was saying, you need to, you need to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's false teachers that are enticing and alluring you away. And you need to have a foundation that is unmovable. Folks, we've only made it through chapter 1 and we're out of time. So we'll have to come back next week. Alright? I'm telling you, I love this book. Isn't this Bible amazing? We have not even put a drop in the bucket on its truth in a year and a half of Bible survey. Not even a drop in the bucket yet. We can study it a lifetime and still be a novice at it. But we ought to study it. We ought to learn it. It sure helps us in our life to combat these things. We'll pick up there next week, and we're going to find three things about false teachers next week. We're going to find out uh, a description of them. We're going to learn a little bit more about the dangers of them. And then we're going to learn about God's judgment on them. And uh, very important, all three of them taught in chapter 2. And so don't miss that. I want you to be here for that especially. And uh, we'll try to finish up the book next week, but if not, we'll just take one chapter a week till we get through. This is a powerful, powerful letter that Peter writes. Not that the others are not powerful, but, boy, I'll tell you, I've enjoyed uh, in preparing for this Sunday school lesson especially uh, probably as much of any of the books that we've studied so far. This has probably been one of the top ones that I have thoroughly enjoyed studying. The truth is just, just probed into my heart. And uh, God's Word has a way of doing that, doesn't it? What a blessing it is. What a blessing it is. Well, let's be dismissed. We'll start about uh, 11.05 or so. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful once again for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless and use the teaching of